Welcome to episode two of season 3.5 of the Read by the Author podcast, or this season is Read by the Authors podcast. I am back again with Lindsay Pogue, my co-author for the ending series and the ending legacy. And tonight or today or whenever it is that you were listening, we will be continuing World After. I don't feel like we need to do too much of an intro this time since we did it last time. So... We will be starting with chapter two, which is spin, which is Lindsay's chapter. Chapter two, Finn. No more death, not because of me. Jake's words weighed heavily on me as I'd recounted to Autumn what happened in the woods and explained why Jake hadn't returned with me. His words continued to loop through my mind as the families of Timmons, Claire, Dallas, and the others fell into despondency upon seeing their slain, slain loved ones wrapped in linen all of their lives brutally taken before their time. And Jake's words still haunted me as I sat on top of the waterfall, staring into the cresting dawn beyond the ocean. The boughs of the redwoods behind me creaked and rustled in the coastal breeze that whirled through the canopy. And with with it came the salty scent of morning and the sweetness of the wild fuchsias that crept up the cliffs can i just take an author's note for a second and say that we just listened to the narrator say read this chapter so now all i can think about is neil's voice in my head and i'm like god i'm such a i'm crappy sorry crappy uh, uh substitute okay sorry he does he does a great job yeah beast eyed me from his curled up heat beside me the tip of his tail flicking in time with the distant waves I'd never known any place other than the coast where the 20-foot falls fell into the Pacific Ocean and the woods separated two completely different worlds of equal but strangely different threats. Ferals stalked the woods and mountains. They were the last of a species left behind by the outbreak centuries ago. Their minds were too primal to let them die out now. They clung to life just like we did, only the years of isolation had turned them nearly rapid. But beyond the mountains and forest, beyond the tree belt, Corvo City bustled. It was a beacon of law and order and supposed safety. Where the pure bloods and the poor, the ones who knew nothing but indenturehood to their betters, lived out their lives of naivety. Oh my God, I can't even say it. Naivety. Wait, how do you say that? Naivete. Naivete. Oh, that doesn't sound right either, but okay. We'll say. Naivety. It's not naivety. Naivety. Naivete. I would say naivete. Naivete. What I'm going for, guys. I might be saying it wrong anyway. You're probably right. You know all these things. Mm. Okay. And action. (laughs) Jake had ensured we never saw such fate, such a fate, guiding us generations after generation in this life of seclusion. I finally understood why being hidden was so important. I'd seen firsthand what came to pass uh, for all of us. When I was little, Jake had been a ghost, foretold to come and go throughout the years, visiting each generation in order to prepare them for what might come one day, or what might one day come again. Another end, another battle, another time to flee. He'd taught us about our past and the importance of our future. He trained us every day he was here for war or resistance, equipping us with the knowledge we would need when the harsh world around us and what ran through our blood. Oh. Wait, sorry, let me start over. He trained us every day he was here for the war or resistance, equipping us with the knowledge we would need about the harsh world around us and what ran through our blood. 
or rather who ran through our blood. I glanced back at the cemetery, past the eight fresh mounds covering my fallen friends and the moss-covered headstones that were weather-worn but far from forgotten. Rebecca Vaughn, 28 AE, revolutionary and savior. Fear not the dark, for with it comes peace. Tom Cartwright, 39 AE, survivor and grandfather. May you rest in peace with mom. Jason Cartwright, 51 AE, husband, father, brother, hero. Danny, aka Red Cartwright, 52 AE, D, my soul sister, best friend, and an amazing mother. I miss you every day. Yeah. I, I don't remember the conversation we had when we decided on these, but I really love that Danny and Jason like passed a year apart from each other. I feel like it just fits with their whole kind of like, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Thing. Right. Mm-hmm. My gaze continued down the row, wishing I'd known all of them so I could remember my ancestors the way Jake still did. Harper, Sanchez, Chris, Carlos, Peter, Sam. But my eyes lingered on the next. Zoe Cartwright, 59 AE, my beloved. The carved knot above her name matched the one on Danny's. I'd heard stories of the first years about the world before and after the outbreak, the power-hungry fanatics who thought they were gods and the eradication of the regions. The originals, my ancestors, had fought all their lives to keep us safe because our blood and our abilities were from the purest, most noble people in our history, notable people in our history. In a world built on fear and power, we would always be hunted because of that. I understood that now more than ever. We'd spent our lives in hiding because evil always seemed to find us, and for what? I clenched my hands into fists at my sides. No more death, not because of me. My best friends were dead. Jake was gone, and the Corvo Queen knew where we lived. Her rangers could come back, despite their promise not to, and Jake would have given himself up for nothing. He thought I was reckless and rash, and maybe I was sometimes, but Jake wasn't saving anyone by leaving. If anything, he had taken our greatest weapon away when he'd given himself to them. Beast's head shot up as I rose and began to pace. Don't look at me like that, I told him. His ears went back and his tail twitched again. I saw myself through his eyes, a red mane of hair, hard, narrowed eyes, and determined strides. But I ignored him. You don't understand, I grumbled. Why are you laughing? Author's note. (laughs) Because I'm picturing... Because what? I'm I'm picturing... So sorry. I'm picturing that one AI art that you made. Wait, which one? The one with the hair. Oh, in the unmentionables? Yes. (laughs) To be clear, the guy was fully clothed, and yet he had a giant bush of red hair coming out of the crotch area of his jeans. (laughs) I don't even understand why it was not part of my prompt. The hair, a red mane of hair. I don't know why. It just got me. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's pretty funny, actually. Sorry. Sorry. I'm like, (laughs) she's like snorting behind. Like, what is she laughing at over there? Oh, Oh, man. I love it. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) all right beast head shot up as i rose and began to pace don't look at me like that i told him his ears went back and his tail twitched again i saw myself through his eyes a red mane of hair hard narrowed eyes and determined strides but i ignored him you don't understand i grumbled beast's tail lashed and he growled at me guilt swelled immediately i know i said sorry i didn't need to use my animal telepathy to know that beast felt japes Jake's absence. 
as much as I did. Jake was the one who'd found him when he was a cub, injured in the woods with a broken leg. Like too many innocents, the Farrells had killed his mother and siblings and had left him to starve. Jake had brought Beast to me, an orphan cougar cub, for an orphan boy child in need of a friend, and the three of us had shared a bond ever since. But being angry was easier than the fear and uncertainty I felt imagining Jake's fate. It was easier than accepting the truth that we might never see him again, that I might never see him again. I continued to pace. I knew I'd find you here. I glanced over my shoulder as Autumn stepped around the gravestones. A small smile curved her lips, though her face was sullen from all that had transpired in the transpired in the past 12 hours. I wanted to make sure you were okay. I shook my head because I wasn't okay. I was angry with Jake and with myself. I let him leave, I told her. Jake hadn't only been a teacher to me since the Farrells killed my parents. He'd been one of the few constants in my life. I dragged my hand over my face, feeling the exhaustion of the past 24 hours behind my eyes and at the base of my neck. I should have told him to screw off <laughs> or that I was going to, or that I was going with him. I should have. You wouldn't have said that, she countered. I stopped mid-step and looked at her. I could have helped him find a different way instead of just accepting it. Autumn stepped closer, the breeze playing with the loose strands of her blonde hair, but I turned away. Despite her brave face, her eyes didn't lie, and I didn't want to see the pain or fear in them, no matter how much she tried to hide it. The rangers will come back for us, I told her. History had repeated itself too many times for it to be any different. Finn, she rested her hand on my shoulder. Look at me. Autumn's voice was adamant. I, I could hear the strain in it, and my chest tightened. Finlay, she snapped. I forced myself to turn around and peered into her green eyes, the only part of us that was similar. Do you remember Do you remember them, Mom and Dad? I asked, wondering about our parents, because they were only a shadow in the memory, in my memory after all these years. I was 10 years old when they, I was 10 years older than you when they died, she said. Of course I do. Father was a farmer and a predominant telepath, I said, repeating all I really knew about him. She nodded, and mother's strength was nulling. And none of it helped protect them, I ground out. Autumn's brow furrowed, and her lips pursed. This isn't about them, she said softly, and her hands fell back to her sides. I began to pace again, more frantically this time. You're right, it's about Jake and the fact that I know far more about him than I do about my own parents. Finn, he's been here all these years, not them. Finlay, no. I said, ignoring the pain in her eyes. Listen to me. I had the desperate need to make her understand. He drinks his tea every morning with the sunrise before everyone wakes up. He helps Cyrus with his aim and grapples with him to make him feel like he's not just a cripple, but that he's has a purpose, just like the rest of us. He goes on hikes and hunting trips all the time because he'd rather be alone than in any in the company of the villagers except for me, he takes me with him. And no matter where he goes, when he gets in one of his moods or what he does while he's away, he always comes home to us. I know more about him than I know about my own parents. And now he's gone. I pointed toward the fog rolling in over the sea. Now he's sitting in a cell somewhere or being experimented on for all we know. I understand you're upset, Finn, but there was nothing you could have done. Don't kid yourself. Her voice harshened a little. Jay would have done exactly what he wanted, regardless of anything you said or did, even if that meant he had to tie you up to do it. He's predictable that way. How can you pretend to be so calm about this? I asked, incredulous. 
After all the stories he's told and after all he's lived through, the guy you love is probably never coming back. You you can just accept that. Her brows narrow, her eyebrows narrowed ever so slightly before she could check herself, and then she peered out at the inky blue sea. Jay and I are. I expected her to say that they were only a convenience, which would have been a lie, no matter what she told herself. Complicated, she continued. Companionship is different th- from love, for him at least. She took a step closer. Her eyes leveled on me. Our people take priority over everything else to him. Yeah, and what if they kill him? He can't protect us if he's dead, I said, voicing the thought that had been haunting me since he left, since he sent me back to the village yesterday. They won't kill him, she said, more certain than I was. They clearly need him for something, which could be much worse than death. We both thought it. The gravity of her voice of her voice expressed as much, even if she didn't say it out loud. But d- despite her reassurances and excuses, it didn't feel right to accept any of it. After so many years of hiding and running, he can't just give in now. It's not your call, Finn. He's gone. The decision's been made, and whatever happens, it's what we have to live with. I shook my head, unwilling to accept it. You don't get a choice in this, Finn. Yes, I do, I snapped. He made his choice. Now I'm making mine. Autumn grabbed my arm, her fingers clenching tightly. Don't be stupid. I'm not going to be stupid, but I can't But I can't sit here and do nothing either. You know I can't. And if you didn't have to set an example for everyone else, you'd be figuring out a way to get him back too. She straightened her shoulders. You can't fight against the Corvo army. We don't have to. Or we don't have to fight, I said, realizing this is what Jake had been preparing us for. But I can get intel. I'm the best tracker we have. Jake made sure of it. My mind began to spin a mile a minute and my thoughts tumbled from my lips. I can sneak into the city and figure out where they took him. Maybe I can figure out what they want. I can come back with information so I know what's going on. Maybe then we can at least try to come up with a plan. It's better than sitting here doing nothing. Autumn stared at me, her chest heaving as she realized I wasn't going to change my mind. I imagined she thought of every possible way I could get myself killed and her features pinched. After a few heartbeats, she ran her fingers through her hair. For all that is holy, she muttered and shook her head. Fine. Beast leapt to his feet, his anticipation humming through me, amplifying my own. Autumn took a deep, ragged breath and exhaled an exasperated, slightly hysterical laugh. You'll go, regardless of anything I say anyway. When her eyes met mine again, they were hard and earnest. But you better come home, Finley, or the gods, or the gods damn you. She shook her finger at me. You just better come home. Beast and I exchanged a determined, victorious look. Then I regarded my sister again, offering her nod of agreement. We promise. Three, Belle. I sat across from my usual companion, Adesia, at the breakfast table in my sitting room and stared out the window. The morning sunlight glittered off the faint ripples dancing over the surface of the moat below. The hills to the north were covered in whirling white windmills. Two rusted red towers peeked over the hillsides, all that remained of the ancient bridge that once connected the inner city to the wildlands across the bay. I loved this view, especially at dawn and dusk, when golden light made the castle grounds look somehow ethereal, like the window wasn't a window at all, but a painting of this place from another time. Any other day, I could have lost myself in the view, my soul at peace, but not today. 
Today it seemed wrong for the morning to be so bright when I felt so glum, as though the sun was mocking me with its smug cheeriness. I couldn't stop thinking about the prisoner, about Jake and all the things I had seen when reading Zoe's handwritten words. What did Mother want with him? Curiosity almost overrode my troubled thoughts about the disturbing resonance I had experienced when cleaning up the broken vial of healing elixir. Almost. As I stared out the window, a small rowboat glided around Tower Rock, the tiny island near the eastern edge of the moat where the Tower of Solitude, the location of Corvo City's most secure prison cell, stood tall and looming. It was where captives with the most dangerous and volatile abilities were imprisoned. At least, the one's mother deemed important enough to keep close and alive. For a while. Three people occupied the boat. Two were castle guards. The other was Jake. The instant I recognized him, the whispers returned in full force. I closed my eyes and a low groan hummed in my throat. I had just gotten rid of the damned noise, and now it was back, prodding me into action. Couldn't the whispers at least have given me a single day of reprieve? Del, Adeja said, are you all right? Down below, on Tower Rock, the knights escorted Jake up the stone stairway to the reinforced steel door barring the tower's entrance. Del, Adeja said again, setting her fork on her plate with a faint clink. Del? She repeated with more force. I tore my attention from the window and looked at Adesia, but wasn't really seeing her. My thoughts were on the tiny island across the water, on Jake now, and on him two and a half centuries in the past. I blinked, my brain catching up with the here and now. I'm sorry, I said, focusing on Adesia. What did you say? Adesia cleared her throat, daintily, like she did all things. Adeja was poised and pretty, delicate and gentle. She was the light to my dark, the bend to my break, the calm to my storm. She had been my companion for as long as I could remember, since we were both young girls, and while I genuinely liked her, I couldn't help but wish for a companion with a little more fire. But then, Adeja hadn't been chosen as my companion with friendship in mind. She had been chosen for her family and her purity, for her class. For her ability. Adeja was a gauge and a powerful one. She could suppress or amplify the abilities of those around her with merely a thought. If anyone tried to use an ability to hurt me, they would have to take her out first. Conversely, if I ever needed a little boost in the empath department, she was there. Are you feeling all right, Dal? Adeja asked, her brow furrowing as she studied my face. You don't seem your usual self. She glanced down at my plate. You've barely touched your honey cakes, and I don't think you've said more than a few words to me all morning. Perhaps you should lie down? I glanced down at my plate. The food lay untouched, the fork limp in my hand. I dropped it and sat back in my chair, squeezing my eyes shut and scrubbing my hands over my face. I was exhausted. I had been too wound up to sleep when I returned to my room earlier this morning, and the lack of rest was wearing me down. That, and the whispers. Sorry, Ada, I said, lowering my hands to my lap and opening my eyes. I flashed her a weak smile. I didn't mean to ignore you. My attention returned to the window, to the tower across the glittering water. I think I just need some fresh air. 
Adeja sat up straighter, her clear blue eyes lighting up. A walk, then? Her expression brightened further, and her lips curved into a hopeful grin. Or shopping? Shall I call for a pair of guards to escort us to the market district? No, I blurted, the single word coming out more forcefully than I intended, and my focus snapped back to Adeja. Her eyes widened in surprise. I carefully fixed my lips in an apologetic smile. Sorry, I just... I took a deep breath. There's a lot going on right now, I said. I want to walk around the gardens, get some fresh air, clear my head. Alone? Adeja's face fell and her shoulders slumped. I doubted it was the prospect of losing my sparkling company that dampened her mood. Rather, she was already mourning the loss of a chance to spend the day in the market district, browsing the merchant stalls and fancifully dressed storefronts. My expression softened, and the smile was no longer forced. But you should go shopping, Ada. I pushed back my chair and stood, heading for the fireplace. I pulled the keyring from the pocket of my dressing gown and fit it into the lock on the small chest forged from elemental steel that held my personal cache of coins. The iridescent wavy lines that patterned the top of the chest shimmered in the diffused sunlight streaming in through the windows as I lifted the lid. I fished out a few gold cronins from the stash, then shut and relocked the chest. Author's note, I distinctly <laughs> I laughing too. I distinctly remember how long it took us to figure out what to call those. What we're gonna call their coins. <laughs> anyway. It seems like so long ago. I know. Were... I mean, I think it was like two years. We took up a, a, a hot minute. Yeah, I think it was probably longer than that because we we outlined it and like brainstormed it long before we started writing it. Yeah. Anyway. I've seen you eyeing the masks displayed in Lady Lisbeth's shop window, I said as I returned to the table, standing beside my chair, but not sitting. Why don't you meet with Lady Lisbeth to design a couple of custom masks, one for each of us for the bicentennial ball? I held my hand over the table, offering the Cronins to Adasia. This should cover the deposit. Adasia's lips parted and she eyed the small fortune. She smiled and hesitantly, she reached out and took the coins. I would be honored, Del, she said, her gaze rising to meet mine. The bicentennial ball had been on her mind for months. All anyone in the inner city could talk about was how they would celebrate the Corvo dynasty's entry into its third century of glory and prosperity. Only the purest and most noble families would celebrate with Queen Corisand, my mother, at the bicentennial ball in the Onyx Ballroom here in Castle Corvo. Mother claimed it would be the grandest affair the gleaming black walls had ever seen. Adesia couldn't wait. But I could. I wished I could stop time, stop the blood rites that would determine who I would marry, stop the seven suitors from the outlying kingdoms from ever arriving at all. I forced a grin, not wanting Adesia to pick up on my souring mood and prod me to talk through my feelings on the matter. Yet again, we had discussed my impending engagement and marriage ad nauseum, and I couldn't do it again, not right now. Adeja's smile faltered, regardless of my intent. Are you sure you're all right? Stop worrying, Ada, I said, reclaiming my seat and perching on the edge of my chair. I plucked a strawberry from the plate of honey cakes in front of me and popped it into my mouth, 
flashing Adesia a closed mouth smile as I chewed. I'm fine, I assured her, lifting my mug and taking a sip of lukewarm tea. Adesia's face displayed her internal struggle. She didn't believe me, but her concern for my well-being was at odds with her desire to go mask shopping. And her desire won. Scene break. I crossed the bridge connecting Castle Corvo to the mainland. The moat was just large enough to surround Castle Corvo and Tower Rock with a protective barrier of water and to soften the imposing appearance of the castle. It did provide a peaceful, almost idyllic setting, with the tree-lined road surrounding the moat and the orange poppies mixed with other wildflowers providing ground cover around the bases of the trees. Birds chirped and sang, the sun shone, and the air carried the faintest hint of the briny sea. It was an effort to keep my pace slow and steady. I greeted a pair of nobles chatting near the middle of the bridge with a wooden smile, then stepped off the bridge and turned right, starting up the road toward the boathouse. Unless I wanted to swim across the moat to the Tower of Solitude, I would need to borrow a rowboat. At the sound of a familiar caw, I glanced over my shoulder and spotted Sid gliding toward me. He usually warned me of his approach so I could prepare for his landing. I raised my arms as the raven swooped down, flapping his wings at the last minute to slow his descent. His talons gripped the leather bracer covering my forearm. He took a moment to regain his balance before hopping up the ribbed leather strip lining the upper portion of my sleeve and reclaiming his usual perch on my shoulder. The tips of his feathers tickled my neck as he settled in. Good morning, Sid, I said, tilting my head away from him so I could see him better. A smear of something wet glistened on his obsidian beak. Blood, no doubt. You look like you've gotten up to no good, I murmured. Sid ignored me, twisting his neck to preen the feathers under his wing. Well, I hope you had a good breakfast, I told him, returning my attention to the way ahead. We have work to do. When we reached the boathouse, I sent Sid off on a mission to distract the boatmaster while I shielded my mind and snuck down to the dock and borrowed one of the smaller rowboats. Oars in hand, I quickly rowed the boat around to the far side of Tower Rock, the whispers seeming to grow louder with each and every stroke. I guided the boat into a small alcove hidden between the sheltering roots of a cypress tree and tucked the oars safely inside the boat as I waited for Sid to join me. A few minutes later, Sid landed on a branch overhead. I tied off the boat and awkwardly climbed onto the sloping shore of the small island, leaning on the trunk of the cypress for balance. I peered up the short but steep rocky incline to the tower jutting into the sky. Getting up there wouldn't be easy. Getting into the tower unnoticed would be even harder. Blowing out a breath, I started to climb. Uh-oh, Sid croaked as I clambered over the ledge bordering the base of the tower. He leapt off the branch with a caw. I froze and looked up. Sid circled overhead above the imposing figure of a knight, silhouetted by the blinding sunlight. He stood a few paces away, hands on his hips, his expression hidden in shadow. I had been noticed, which left me with a single option. An option which, if discovered, would mean death for me. But I had no choice. The whispers drove me onward. I had to find out why Jake was here, why now, right after I found Zoe's book, and what his connection was to the whispers. My sanity depended on it. I raised a hand to block out the sun and finally got a good look at the knight's face. 
tanned skin and amber eyes, strong angular features, just the faintest hit of stubble on his jawline, a lump of icy dread settled in my belly. You shouldn't be here, princess, the knight said. I stood up, taking a moment to brush my hands off before straightening. Good morning to you too, Gareth, I said, giving the strapping young knight a once-over. What are you doing here? I snorted a laugh. My banter was all bravado. Inside, I was panicking. What did you do? Pluck the wrong flower? Gareth had a certain reputation with the ladies of the noble houses and with the ladies of the less noble houses. He was usually stationed in the throne room, serving mother. Guarding a prisoner was a clear demotion. Regardless, it was no wonder that he had discovered my attempt to sneak into the tower. He was a telepath and a powerful one, not limited to humans or small geographic regions like so many of our generation. Even with my mental guard up, he'd likely spotted me through the eyes of his animal familiars and had been tracking me since I had left the boathouse. I hated what I was about to do. Beyond the fact that using the more dangerous facet of my ability exhausted me, Gareth was one of the few of Mother's Knights that I genuinely liked. He wasn't in it for the power, but for the good of the kingdom. At 22, he was only a few years older than me, and he had often been my sparring partner during my combat training sessions over the years. This world wasn't a safe place, especially not for those in power. There was a reason I was Mother's sole heir. Of course, since Gareth had helped train me, that meant he knew most of my tricks. He wasn't about to let me simply reach out and touch him. I would have to improvise. Why are you here, princess? Gareth asked. I thought we were past all that princess stuff, I said, raising my eyebrows as I took a step toward him. Gareth stepped backward, keeping pace with me. His armor was hardened black leather reinforced with carbon fiber chainmail. I would need a clear patch of skin for my forbidden trick to work, but Gareth was covered from boots to mid-neck that left his face. Awkward, to say the least. I took another step toward him, but this time I purposely caught the toe of my boot on the sharp edge of exposed rock and tumbled forward into Gareth's open arms. As he helped me regain my footing, I tilted my head back, my eyes meeting his, and reached up, cupping the side of his face with my hand. Gareth's amber eyes widened and his expression softened. Del, he breathed, his gaze searching mine. I'm sorry, I whispered, just a moment before I brushed my lips against his and pushed my way into his mind. Within Gareth's memories, I found the moment before he noticed my mental signature in the boathouse and stretched that moment out, blanketing it over all that had happened between then and now. But I didn't stop there. I spliced in a simple illusion, making Gareth believe he had scouted around to the side of the tower in search of a mysterious but benign noise. I clipped myself and Sid from his perception, making us relatively invisible for the time being. So long as we didn't make any big movements or loud noises, he wouldn't notice we were there. I changed his memories, manipulated his mind. Some might call it mind control. It was an exhausting trick and extremely dangerous. The eradication of all controllers was the base upon which the Corvo Kingdom had been founded. Every day I struggled with the possibility that I was one of them. 
I could make people change their minds. I could make them believe something other than the truth. By altering their perception, their memories, I could control them. Gareth's focus grew distant, almost like he was looking through me, and he let go. He looked around, then frowned and turned his back to me. As he made his way back to the tower entrance, I fished the pendant watch out from my collar and set the timer for eight minutes. The altered perception effect should hold a minute or two longer than that, but it would begin to degrade shortly after. If I wanted to get away unnoticed and ensure he had no memory of me being here, I would have to leave Tower Rock by then. I could always tamper with his mind again, but each successive touch to the same memory patch would decrease the stability of the patch. Blowing out of breath, I followed Gareth to the front of the tower. I slyly plucked the keyring from his belt and used the largest, most complex key to unlock the heavy steel door. As quietly as I could, I opened the door, then turned back to Gareth and carefully returned the keyring to his belt. My gaze drifted up to his familiar features. If I had any kind of choice in the matter, I thought I could grow to love Gareth, given the chance. In another time, another place, we could have been happy together. But the choice of whom to love wasn't given to princesses of this kingdom. I'm so sorry, I repeated, the words barely audible. And then I turned away from him and slipped into the tower, waiting for Sid to swoop in before easing the door shut behind me. The whispers were even louder inside the tower, seeming to echo off the lead-lined cement walls. As my limited time continued to tick by, I rushed up the spiraling staircase, only slowing when the landing at the top came into view. Sid clung to my shoulder, his talons nearly piercing through the leather lining. A couple more steps and I could see the first few iron bars of the square prison cell built into the chamber at the top of the tower then the foot of a bed at the center of the cell. And then, finally, I could see the man I had come here for. Jake sat on the edge of the thin mattress, his bare feet on the floor and his elbows on his knees, his head hanging as he stared at the polished cement floor. He wore a simple tunic and trousers of fine woven cotton, dyed bright red to make him conspicuous should he try to flee. His clean skin made it obvious that he had been allowed to bathe before being sent to his solitary prison. I stepped on the landing and approached the bars. The whispers were suddenly quiet, and I couldn't tell if the faint hum that filled their absence was all in my head or caused by the electric current charging the cell bars. I took one final step toward the bars, then stopped and cleared my throat. Jake raised his head and looked at me, his focus shifting from my face to the raven on my shoulder and back. He narrowed his eyes, his stare scrutinizing. With a derisive laugh, he looked away, focusing on the wall through the electrified bars. I stood there, unsure of what to say. I hadn't actually thought this far ahead. I had met a few healers, but Jake was by far the oldest, by a century or two. How was I supposed to talk to someone like him? To a patron? Did your mother send you? Jake asked, his voice a low rumble. My eyes widened and my heartbeat sped up. I suddenly felt too hot and kind of sweaty all over, as nerves sent a subtle tremor through my, throughout my body. No, I said, swallowing reflexively. She doesn't know I'm here. No one does. I cleared my throat again. I came to talk to you, but I don't have much time. I saw the rangers bring you in, and 
I licked my lips, shooting a quick glance over my shoulder. I know who you are. Jake's attention returned to me, a hint of curiosity in his stare. And who exactly do you think I am? I took a deep step. A deep step. Lunge those hips. (laughs) Visuals are the best. I took a tiny step closer to the deadly cell bars. You're Jake, I said. The patron. The healer. Jake laughed under his breath, but there was no humor in the sound. He stood and casually approached, his eyes locking with mine. As he drew precariously close to his electrified cage, I fought the urge to take a step backward. What do you want, princess? Jake asked, leaning closer to the bars. On my shoulder, Sid ruffled his feathers, snapping his beak in warning. Again, I glanced behind me, making sure we were still alone. Because it's obvious you're not supposed to be here, he added. I want to understand, I told him, meeting his stare. Where have you been all this time? And why are you here now? Jake leaned back a little and crossed his arms over his chest, his eyes narrowing once more. You're an empath, aren't you? Can't you dig through my mind to find what you need? I shook my head, hesitating for a moment. I'm not that kind of empath, I finally admitted. I have to be touching someone to see or feel anything. Jake frowned and grunted. If your ability is so limited, then how did you get in here? He asked. I averted my gaze to the floor, my cheeks heating. I could feel Jake's weighty stare. How about a trade? He said. A question for a question. An answer for an answer. My eyes returned to his, but only for a moment. His head tilted slightly. A truth for a truth. I swallowed roughly, weighing my options. I came here for a reason. To get some answers. Was I really about to let a little thing like fear get in my way? My stare locked on the floor. I nodded. Then tell me, Jake said. How did you get in here? I sighed. I tricked Gareth, the knight guarding the tower, I explained. I hesitated before damning myself completely, then barreled onward. I created an illusion in his mind. He won't remember that he saw me here, so long as I leave before the illusion fades. I had never told anyone about that facet of my ability, not even mother, especially not mother. If she found out, there was a good chance she would have me killed. In my peripheral vision, I watched Jake study me. The seconds ticked by, precious time slipping away as I awaited his judgment. Would he see me the same way Mother would if she ever found out, especially after the horrors controllers had committed during Jake's time? Or worse, would Mother dig it out of his mind? Would she even need to? Would he volunteer the information? Some might call that mind control, Jake finally said, voicing my greatest fear. My heart hammered in my chest, and I felt slightly lightheaded. But not me, Jake said. Tom was the same, he added. Zoe could do it a little bit, too. I dragged my stare up to Jake's face, to his eyes. What was he saying? Was he telling me that two of the beloved originals, Zoe and her father, were like me? Another of those derisive laughs rumbled in Jake's chest. Your fear is understandable, he said. 
You've never known a true controller since there aren't any left. All you have are stories and lore to compare yourselves to now. But I can tell you this, you're no controller. I don't think my mother will see it the same way, I said, my voice hushed and frail. Who says she'll ever find out, he said, his brow lifting wryly. While I appreciated the sentiment, it was a lie. We both knew it. Mother was a renowned empath, known across all the kingdom for being able to dig the deepest, darkest secrets out of her enemies' minds. Mother would be able to pluck the information from Jake with minimal effort, unless I created an illusion, overriding his memory of my visit. She would be able to detect my tampering eventually, if she looked hard enough, but at least it would buy me some time. And if Jake was no longer her prisoner, then she wouldn't have access to his mind. I would have no choice, free him or kill him. I couldn't help but suspect I had just stepped into a carefully laid trap. The corner of Jake's mouth lifted, his lips displaying the hint of a smile. Do what you have to do, he said. But before you wipe my memory, I promised you answers to your questions. I blinked, surprised by the sudden subject change. I've been hiding, Jake started, with my family. And I'm here because your mother threatened to kill them, to kill more innocents than she already has, if I didn't turn myself in. After a brief pause, he added, And no, I don't know why she wants me, though I have a few guesses. Regardless of why, the slaughter of my people needed to end. I had no words. I simply stared at Jake, my lips parted and my eyes opened wide, horrified by his claim. I... I'm so sorry, I said. I had no idea she was... I shook my head, my mind reeling. Was I really surprised? Mother was ruthless. She was brilliant and strong and determined. But was she a murderer? My stomach nodded as I recalled the resonance from the broken vial in the vault. The man writhing in pain as his blood was drained from his body. Yes, Mother was definitely capable of murder. I straightened, squaring my shoulders, and moved a little closer to the bars. I want to help you, you and your people, I told him. What can I do? Jake's jaw twitched as he stared at me, and a strange mixture of relief and curiosity lit his eyes, as if he was trying to figure me out. You really want to help? I nodded hurriedly. Find out what the queen wants with me, he said. What's she after that's worth the deaths of so many? A chiming filled the chamber, and I glanced down at the pendant watch resting against my chest. Sid ruffled his wings. Time's up! Four. Finn. The waters were choppy and sloshed into the hole of my boat as I tried, as I tied it to the top of a sunken sailboat mast protruding from the dark waters beneath the cliff's edge. My fishing boat wasn't the best our village had built, and though the cedar planks were seven years weather-worn, it was still strong and reliable. With no bridge connecting the wild headlands to the lands belonging to the Corvo Kingdom, crossing the bay by boat had been my most direct option. Fishing in calm waters on a sunny day with Claire and Dallas bickering on the bow was one thing, but the turbulent uppercuts of the white caps were another, and I was glad to be so close to dry land. My heart ached at the thought of my dead friends, but I pushed the pain aside and tightened the rope around the rusted mast. Heaving a steadying breath, I peered up at the sandstone cliffs, 
the towering cypress trees bent to the will of the wind, and it would be a harried climb to the top, to say the least. But this spot would have to do. Here, where the boat was hidden on the outskirts of the forest, was the safest place to come and go undetected near Corvo City. Beast leapt onto the dry cliff, unable to leave the sloshing boat fast enough, and settled on the root, settled at the roots of one of the trees growing out from the side of the mountain. With his ears lowered and his coat wet with salt water, he glowered at me and began to lick himself clean. It's not my fault you're wet, I told him. Blame the royals. Hell, blame Jake if you want, but don't blame me. The boat rocked as I donned my fox fur cape and shrugged on my pack. Then I slung my bow and quiver over my shoulder. With a final gust of wind and a splash of our waves, and a splash of the waves over my already <laughs> drenched clothes, I gripped onto the rocky cliffside, found purchase for my foot, and pulled myself up. My boots slipped on a sandy crevasse, <laughs> uh, but having uh, having always been a good climber, I found my footing easily and gripped the sandstone harder and began to climb. The late afternoon sun pressed against my back, and I figured that once it set, I would be grateful for the furs to keep me warm, even if I felt ridiculous wearing them. Though I'd never been to Corvo City, I knew they traded with outsiders for goods and wares all the time. A fur trader seemed a safe enough bet to get me into the city, but it was what would happen once I was inside that I still needed to iron out. Knowing beasts would have to remain outside the city walls to avoid being captured or killed didn't ease my anxieties either. The rocks made for decent grips and stepping stones, and I quickly passed Beast up the side of the cliff as he licked the salt from his coat. There's no time for that. I told him, earning a thwarted growl in return. You can primp and preen later. My shoulders and neck strained as I continued to the top, and Beast growled at me again before he left past, looking smugly down at me. I'd race you, but we already know I'd win. <laughs> Bastard, I muttered, and continued to climb. The waves crashed against the rocks below, and while heights had never bothered me much, sand in my mouth always did. <laughs> That seems horrible. Yeah, I know. Like, like, feel it. <laughs> I know. I scowled up at Beast as he jumped from one perch to another, raining dust and gravel down on me. After an entire day of rowing in rough waters, my forearms and biceps ached with fatigue, but I pushed past it. I had to stay focused. I had to ignore the wind whipping by me, sending a wash of chills over my dampened skin. And with one last heave, I made the final climb to the top. As I pulled myself... Over the edge of the cliff and onto flatter ground, I gave an exhale of relief for my muscles' sake and peered across the bay into the fog-shrouded wildland. Home felt like an entire world away, and I fleetingly hoped this wasn't the last time I would ever see it. My chest tightened at the thought, but I pushed the possibility away. I had more immediate concerns. I'd expected there would be city guards patrolling the land surrounding Corvo City, whether it was a telepathic survey or a forest search party to ensure there was no incoming danger. Either way, I was prepared. The minds I could sense, near and far, were blocked as I forced on, as I focused on them, closing my mind to theirs and nulling their abilities against me, as I hid my mind signature from any telepaths who would be able to sense me as well. The more intently I focused, the more the tingling mind signatures in the periphery of my consciousness dulled, quickly turning to nothing. Nulling was the, nulling was, okay, Lindsay, you can say this. Nulling was the only sure way for me to go unnoticed by prodding minds. And getting through the inner walls of the city was paramount if I was going to find Jake 
or glean any information worth knowing while I was in there. And while the guys of a fur trader seemed like a solid plan to get into the city, approaching from the opposite side of the peninsula, away from the shipping port, might alarm them, which meant I needed to remain invisible and unthreatening for as long as possible. Sitting a few feet in front of me, Beast growled, goading me to hurry up this time. He flicked his tail, impatiently waiting for our adventure to start. Nothing about Beast was patient, which was why he we got along so well. But he was right. The longer I waited, the worse off Jake might be, and I didn't want to think about what sort of damage the queen and her people could have done to him in the span of the past 24 hours. I glanced up at the sun as it began its descent into the horizon, then turned and followed Beast into, into the protective cover of the Cypress Forest. We still had five or six miles to go before we reached the city, and I needed to formulate the rest of my plan. We hadn't been walking more than 20 minutes when the path became less sandy and my boots fell on asphalt. I paused, then stared down at my feet. A road. Not like a deer trail or path carved out of the foliage, but a hard, man-made road that was barely visible through a layer of dirt. I'd only ever seen a real ancient road once before when Jake took me and a few others on a two-week trek north of home toward one of the, aban- toward one of the abandoned communities on the other side of the mountains. Beast brushed through the brushed through the juniper as we continued deeper into the woods, following the road east toward the city. I tried to imagine what this forgotten world had looked like 300 years ago and where exactly the road I was following was taking me. After another 30 minutes, Beast caught wind of a mule deer and veered right, heading into the trees to chase down his dinner. My own stomach rumbled as I realized how long it had been since Autumn had made me eat a goopy bowl of porridge before casting off. Wasting no time, I pulled a biscuit and a piece of jerky from my pack, took a few gulps of water from my deer skin, and continued on my way. I needed the fuel to keep going, and I had a long night ahead of me. I didn't think a break was coming anytime soon. I bit into the biscuit and immediately spit it out and spit it into the dirt, brushing the excessively salty crumbs from my lips. Autumn was the best sister I had, the only sister I had. And I loved her more than anyone, but she couldn't cook to save her life. (laughs) That was Jake's thing. And sometimes that was Jake's thing. And sometimes mine, I tossed the biscuit into the brush or sorry, (laughs) bushes for some poor unsuspecting animal to find later and tore a piece of venison off between my teeth. I'd only made it a few more yards before I stopped. A cemetery of buildings stretched out before me, the old parts of the city that were long forgotten. Crumbled facades were half-buried in the sand pits that had swallowed up so much of the peninsula centuries ago. It was why Corvo City was so well-poised on the highest parts of the cliffs, atop a foundation of unsinkable sandstone, surrounded by sand pits and a maze of ruins. It would have been difficult to find my way to Corvo City through the forest if I hadn't had some knowledge of it, thanks to Jake and Beast's keen sense of smell. I'd studied Corvo City's location and listened with awe as Jake recounted the creation of it centuries ago. Long before Corvo City, Harrodson's mind-controlling followers had taken up his cause, even after his death and forced thousands of unwitting people into slavery. They established the new world exactly as they wanted it, with new settlements and laws upheld with deadly force. But everything changed after the Great Awakening in 30 AE. When survivors finally broke away and builders amassed on the peninsula to construct a safe haven for the free people of the new republic. 
survivors with abilities came from all around the continent with the hope of protection and the naive wish for a shared sense of community. Little did they know the Corvo elitists who had stepped in with their powerful abilities wouldn't only help the freed wouldn't only help the freed people to build a safe haven, but they would build a kingdom through which the Corvo dynasty would rule as power hungry as any survivor before them. The closer I drew to the ruined city of San Francisco, the more unnerved I became. The faded photographs I'd seen of ancient of the ancient city were nothing compared to the decaying buildings I saw through the trees. Some of the some of the structures had collapsed, while others stood ominously, as if not even the wind could knock them down. It was an eerie playground of rust and ruin, but I couldn't avoid it, so I continued through. People had lived here once, and even if I knew their bodies were long gone, I could imagine the graveyard of the dead a few layers beneath my feet. Cypress boughs creaked in the breeze, and dust whipped through the abandoned city, making it howl in protest as I trudged through the sand dunes formed along the streets. Buildings were toppled with cracks and gaping holes. Legible, eroded metal signs were covered in grapevines. Rotted wooden poles jutted sporadically from the sand, leaning a dozen feet out of the ground with frayed wires snapping in the breeze. Corvo City was close. I just needed to see how close and make sure I was heading in the right direction. I looked for the highest vantage point in a sea of ruin and walked over to a metal shell of what appeared to be an old automobile of some sort, long and boxy, that angled a couple of dozen feet toward the sky. I climbed up, gripping the corroded metal for purchase as it heaved a tiny groan with each of my steps. Determined not to fall and break my neck, I balanced myself as I reached the top, then straightened and peered out into the gray evening sky. The crumbled city stretched on, caked in rust and weathered by time. Nature, however, had run its course too, softening the harshness of what wasn't buried with overgrown bramble bushes and ivy. I squinted as the last rays of sun glinted off something metallic in the distance. Then I realized what it was, part of Corvo City, a bell and a tower, perhaps, or a monument which stood sentry over the city from atop its hill. Lush green fanned out around the castle, met by a wall that shimmered in the dying light. A labyrinth of buildings and streets snaked their way down the hillside, disappearing behind another wall that stood between me and Jake. It's a fortress, I realized. Walls upon walls separated the royal family from the rest, and I feared getting through the city gates would be the least of my problems. Running my hands over my face, I sighed, pushing away the exhaustion of the day. I was a couple of miles out still, but if I was quick, I could get to the city before the time before. <laughs> but if I was quick, I could get to the city by the time full night set in. I'll know Jake's fate soon enough. Gulping down my fear, I slid off the I slid off the side of my rusted lookout perch. Jake didn't know it, but he was counting on me to save him. Autumn was counting on me too, and no matter how many walls and guards stood between us, I was resolved. I would find Jake. My boots had barely hit the ground when I felt another wave of unease, but it wasn't mine this time. I knew instantly it came from Beast, and I opened my mind to his even more. Panic hit me like a gale of wind, and I ran in his direction. He was near, in a thick barred cage that flashed in my mind's eye, and he was scared for his life. My legs carried me faster as I used his mind signature to find him. I'm coming, I told him, but I could feel his fear as if it were my own, clawing, heart-hammering, perilous fear. 
He growled and yowled in the distance. I'm coming. Hold on. I saw the ferals through B-sides before I rounded the corner of a crumbled cement heap. Uh, my feet halting if I wanted my feet halting even if I wanted to run straight for him. I lingered in the shadows of dying sunlight, out of sight, as two ferals lifted their spears and stalked toward him. I lifted my bow and pulled an arrow from my quiver. I would have to be quick to get them both. As I took aim, I realized they weren't like the other ferals I'd come across before. There were only two of them, not a family or a looting gang or hunting party. It appeared to be a mother and her daughter with wild, unkempt hair and dirt on their faces. Their clothes were torn to almost nothing, as if the things they wore were all they had. I drew the bro I drew the bowstring back. <laughs> Side note, I feel like I feel narrator's pain sometimes reading these stuff things out loud with the double Bs or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the idea of a bro string. What's a bro string? Heck yeah, bro strings. Bro uh, strings, man. <laughs> I drew the bowstring back prepared to let it loose as they began poking their points the points of their spears to the cave cage bars at beast but my fingers tightened on the string and i hesitated they weren't evil looking creatures but pathetic and wretched they're starving i realized the mother had broad bony shoulders and she rammed her spear through the wooden bars again with emaciated arms barely missing beast as he cowered deeper into the corner of the cage the woman uttered indiscernible words, and the girl beside her shrieked something back in reply. They jabbed their spears harder, and Beast lashed out at them. He hissed and growled and clawed at the cage as they tried to poke him again, knocking the girl's spear out of her hands at this time. I cursed myself for hesitating. They were going to kill him. Suddenly, they spun around, lifting their noses to the air with wide, fearful eyes, and an idea dawned on me. I wasn't sure if they could smell me or if they could sense something else, but whatever it was, they were afraid. Of the rangers? I knew ferals had been hunted down and killed off to protect the city, just as the queen's soldiers had tried to do to us. And like us, the ferals didn't stand a chance against an army of ability-wielding rangers, and the ferals' fear of the rangers was an advantage to me. Flexing my consciousness, I grabbed hold of their mind signatures and used the only non-fatal weapon in my arsenal— even if it was one that would take its toll on me. Telepathically, I showed them what I'd seen yesterday, praying they feared the rangers as much as they should. I showed them the dozen men holding their guns point blank, point blank at my hunting party as they circled us, shouting and shooting without an ounce of hesitation. I watched the, feral's mother, the feral mother's eyes widen, and she grunted. She muttered incoherent words louder and more urgently this time as she crouched down, searching the dilapidated streets around her frantically for movement as she tried to discern what was happening. I projected every image and fear. More grunts, more shrieks as the ferals peered around, frantically scanning the desolate streets. The mother's brow pinched, but as she turned back for the cage, pushing her uncertainty aside in need of food, I realized simply seeing the rangers and the havoc they caused wasn't enough to sway her away from her evening meal. I thought harder and pried deeper into her mind. The pain I felt exuding so much effort was overwhelming, but the woman needed to see it, all of it. I let the painful memories pour into both of their minds as I replayed my memory of my friends falling to the ground one by one. And while I begged the men, the man with fire shooting from his palms, into my best friend's chest to stop. 
I felt the rage and helplessness, and my body shook with fear and desperation. My mind continued to throb, and sweat beaded on my brow, but I blared my memories until they were booming as the forms of the cowering women were blurred by tears. I (laughs) gathered a handful of rocks behind me and tossed them in the opposite direction. The sound of them ricocheted off metal signs and poles echoing in the air. That was all it took to send the mother and daughter sprinting away with shrieks of fear as they fleeting looked back at Beast. They would go hungry, but at least they weren't dead. I wasn't sure I could bear having that on my conscience. When they were out of sight, I ran to Beast's cage a few yards away. He chirped with a relief and licked at my hands as I gripped the wooden as I gripped the wooden bar for leverage, pounding the latch open with the bone hilt of my knife I pulled from my belt. When the latch broke, Beast barreled out before I could open it all the way, and together we ran back into the cover of the forest. Only when the feral's mind signatures were far away did I allow myself to stop and breathe. Fleetingly, I regretted using that facet of my ability, knowing the recovery time it would cost me when I had little time to waste, but killing them hadn't felt like an option either. Head still pounding, I fell to my knees under a canopy of cypress. Beast nudged me, purring in relief, and I rested my head against his and tried to catch my breath. My chest heaved, and adrenaline pumped through my veins. If the next 24 hours were going to be anything like the last, I needed to rest. I rocked back on my heels, ability, overload, and exhaustion settling over me like a weighted blanket. My limbs were suddenly too heavy, and my mind was a foggy mess. Rising to my feet, I ran my hands over my face. Holy hell, I rasped. Beast looked at me with an it-took-you-long-enough-to-help-me expression, and guilt washed over me. Yeah, yeah, I leaned over and playfully pushed his annoying face away from me, grateful I hadn't had to resort to the bow. Don't start with me, I need a minute. Suddenly, desperate for sleep, I nodded to a bed of ivy growing around the trees. Shakily, I walked past Beast, ignoring his playful swat at my legs as I made my way to my temporary bed. I dropped my pack and bow by the trunk of the tree and plopped down beside it, wrapping my fur cape tighter around me. We'll sleep just for a little while, I told him. With a languid stretch, Beast walked over and curled up into a purring heap beside me. Before another minute could pass, sleep consumed me. I love that Beast is just like a just like a house cat, but like a giant one. <laughs> I know. It's so funny because <laughs> I keep smiling when I talk about it or when I read his parts because like these are all things that like my because he's yeah. named after my cat Beast. Yeah. For people who are listening <laughs> so it's so funny because it's like i clearly wrote like this cat this giant cougar with beast in mind because beast does all he glowers at me yeah. and he growls at me i love glare, that like pushed his annoying face away from me yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's totally my cat eva just like in my face i'm like mm-hmm. oh my god stop <laughs> that's where we're gonna stop for this episode uh we will be back next week with um a few more chapters of world after and riveting storytelling yes (laughs) (laughs) so until then happy reading happy reading